Library is so glad that you're joining us. Uh, this masterclass is just one of the many wonderful virtual programs that the staff of the Ames Free Library has brought to you throughout this shutdown. Uh, in case you don't know, we are now open for curbside pickup uh, Monday through Saturday. You can take a look at our website for more information about that and other programs. A bit of quick housekeeping. Please keep your mics off at all times. And this program is being recorded for future rebroadcasting. We have a list of questions that were submitted ahead of time for our guest, but if you have a burning question, send it our way in the chat and we'll try to get to it. Uh, you can also say who you are and where you are. Give a shout out to David. Um, and before we meet our very special guest, we have a sizzle reel video that he shared with us. We're gonna to that. Actually, first we're going to show you something else. Mm -hmm. Not that. How do we get to? Share the screen. Sorry about that. This one. Here we go. Here's a little background for you. Right. Uh, now I'd like to introduce you to our moderators, Nicole DeRosa Canella, a former classmate of David's, and Dory Bryan, the Artistic Director and Director of Education at MMAS, the Mansfield Music and Arts Society and Black Box Theater. Now it is with great pleasure that I introduce David Corins, one of the most decorated set designers working on Broadway. 
His sets have been nominated for Tony Awards and won an Emmy, but he says his greatest work so far has been building David Corrin's design, which he founded back in 2004. David's credits include everything from Broadway blockbusters such as Hamilton and Beetlejuice to restaurants like Manhattan's Bond 45, the 91st Academy Awards design, concert sets including Bruno Mars, Lady Gaga and Kanye West, music and arts festivals, and branding for names like Target and Google. But before all that, he was an athlete at Mansfield High School, a member of the choir, concert band, jazz band, and marching band. He starred in the holiday plays and musicals and was president of the MHS class of 1994 due to a successful write-in campaign. He has spoken and shared his gift all over the world, and today he's here with us. Welcome to the Ames Free Library. We're gonna show your sizzle reel, and then I'm gonna hand it over to your friend and classmate, Nicole. One second. Dana? Yeah? Hear me? Some people are complaining that there's no sound. Um, can the speakers, un I've tried to unmute the people who are speaking, so can we um, check on that before we actually get started? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the PowerPoint did not have sound. Is that what they were looking for? They, um, someone said, if the presentation was supposed to have sound, the host needed to share computer sound. So that's something that um, we should probably check on before we even start. Um, PowerPoint or quick time? Quick time. Uh, let's see, we're about to share a 45 second reel that does have music. Okay. Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Uh, if they awesome. can't hear it, they can't hear it. All right, Nicole, take it away. Hey, am I, can you hear me okay? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm good, volume, yes? All right, hi everyone. Hi, Dave. Hi. My friends from many moons ago. Many moons, many moons. Lots, lots of good ones though. So I, what I've done is since I could obviously just talk to you forever about our past and our history and, and what shaped us, I decided to ask some of my students, once I told them about our friendship and about Mansfield High School, um, I have students that I teach uh, theater and auditioning skills to, and they have compiled a list of questions for you 
as well. So okay. is that okay? I'll try my and best. They, yeah. They should, First of all, can I, I just want to, I just want to take like one second and thank everyone who is spending their afternoon in quarantine, not outside um, with yeah. us. This is a thrill to me. I told um, the ladies who arranged this um, that I had worked my entire career you know, and had talked to like some really like highfalutin, crazy press people and done a lot of weird things. But by far the thrill of my career was finally getting a call from Dana Oregon and saying, hey, do you want to do an article in the Mansfield News? I waited my whole life for an interview in the Mansfield News. So I was thrilled. And this is, I'm hoping that this hour and change that we spend together is gonna, um, you know, unseat that as, uh, as, my, as my high watermark. But I really, really am grateful that everyone took a little bit of time and um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Although weirdly, I'm nervous more so than I have ever been. I don't know what kind of questions people are gonna ask, but let's do it. All right, so our backstory is, I'm just gonna kind of, first of all, say hi to everybody out there, but I'm just gonna try to catch up with a friend for a second because it's been, it's been a minute and I just wanted to, as a dad, how are you doing with all this? How are you doing with, uh, how are they doing? Social isolating? How's your wife? Um, it, it's a nightmare um, and it's fine. Um, I have always tried to uh, see the positive um, in, in everything. I, you know, and I think that sounds like a cliche, but I feel like if you let yourself you know, read the news and really think about what's going on in the world, you can, you know, choose one of two paths. And I think I kind of vacillate between those two paths, you know, 12 times a day. Yeah. Um, you know, my kids just finished school. Um, they're outside. I keep looking that way because they're over there somewhere. Um, we had, to, you know, one of them just finished eighth grade and one of them just finished fourth grade. And the whole distance learning thing was a complete unmitigated disaster. We live in New York City. When this thing happened, I was in the middle of putting up a brand new Broadway musical. I was like a little bit of a germaphobe before it was cool to be that. I was standing in the corner, social distancing when everyone was gathered around in production meetings, we were teching Mrs. Doubtfire, a new Broadway musical, which by the way, when the world comes back up, I highly recommend, it's fantastic. Yeah. But um, I would go home every night and I, and I was like, this is gonna be bad, this is gonna be bad. And everyone thought you're crazy. And then of course, New York City became like the epicenter. Um, we live right down. Um, right by Lincoln Center, right in the middle of the whole thing. And walking through Times Square was so devastating. And then to have to, you know, teach online and do all that stuff was incredibly hard, not to mention the fact that my entire business went from, you know, 28 touring productions of Broadway shows and other things all around the world to zero. Yeah. Um, every single day was like a cascade of, hey, by the way, we're gonna stop Hamilton in London, Dear Evan Hansen in London, Motown, like everything went away. But the silver lining is um, I have been cooking and meditating and working out and reading and hanging out with my kids and, you know, spending a lot of time um, thinking about what the world will look like. I think we all can agree in the best moments. This is like a, a really welcomed kind of reset, I think, yeah. you know, for um, the world. I think politically we're seeing a huge amount of unrest, which is needed. Um, from my point of view, things have gotten so far one way. The pendulum has swung so far um, towards business and um, me, 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 me. And the one thing that I think is good about the coronavirus, if there's such a thing, is that it is the great, the great equalizer. You yeah. know, it's like 
we have probably the brightest minds in the world working on a collective solution to what is a um, complete global disaster. And as someone who like lives in New York City, like where the bubble was built on top of the bubble, on top of the bubble, on top of the bubble, you can't imagine how expensive and crazy things are there. It's been great to see, you know, real estate and prices and stores and everything just shrink down and close yeah. and everyone shut up and went home and spent time with their family. Yeah. Um, so that's like my last 15 weeks. Um, and, um, you know, now we're like, you know, I, I, I keep looking around at the news and creeping, um, uh, you know, people creeping out of their houses and trying to do this thing where they don't wear their mask. Wear your mask. It's not over. Thank the you. virus doesn't care Thank how long you. you've been stuck. The virus doesn't care how long you've been stuck in your house. Um, you, you know, that dog agrees with me also. Right? Um, and, and, you know, I just feel like let's let the scientists lead, not the politicians. Um, uh, and um, I've been trying to be really productive, you know, and so that's actually how this talk came about. Dana has been um, fighting the good fight to get me back to Mansfield to do something in person for a long time. And my schedule, as you can imagine, is pretty crazy. And finally, I had done seven trillion Zoom meetings. Um, and I finally said um, to my assistant, you know, Dana has been like that squeaky wheel. We should try finally to arrange something for Mansfield. And I think we've all proven with Zoom and all the other technology, we can be anywhere we need to be. And so I actually called her up and said, I think now might be the time. It's not going to be in person, but let's put this together. So it's great to connect to old friends, but it's also um, great to finally try and give back if there's anything I can possibly do for, you know, my home team. Yeah. You're saying about your kids being fourth and eighth. So that's what, 14 and 10? Yeah, almost 15 and almost um, 11. Okay, so, so I, have an, I have an almost 11 too. And I think she would not mind me saying that her uh, emotions and, and the mental health, the social and emotional learning has been paramount to anything academic. You know, we constantly- Oh, just yeah. They're okay. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, in the beginning, my kids were like, we just miss hugs. And, you know, in New York, it's totally different. Well, I'm actually not in New York City right now, full disclosure. I actually, um, we rented a house outside of the city because, you know, I, I just tried to put my kids in a place where they didn't have to wear a mask, lit and gloves and, you know, shower when they came home every single second. So um, we actually have a yard. Um, but it, it's gone from, you know, weird paranoia to um, worse. And now I think we've kind of equalized. So it's a strange time, you know, I think we should all, I, I was in New York City with the brownout, the blackout and a 9-11. So I kind of count myself lucky because we grow through these experiences, um, you know, and I, I really do think, I hope that we learn these lessons about preparedness and, you know, global community. We don't just go back to like business as usual afterward. But I know that my family has certainly, you know, when this thing is hopefully in the rearview mirror, we're going to have grown a lot. It's cool. And that's, that's the thing too, I told my kids is that I don't want this to be something that's in the rearview mirror and we don't take the good stuff from the hindsight. You know, I want right. to remember totally. not to move in a million miles an hour because we were so overscheduled. And that altruism and that idealism that came out of that first few weeks was so heartwarming. And it, you know, you, you cited 9-11, that's how I felt after 9-11 for a little while, that there was actually a potential for a little bit of utopia here in the world for a little while. 
And totally. then after, you know, and then after George Floyd, of course, a much needed unrest unearthed. And I wonder now as a spiritual person, a faithful person, if there's a reason that we were supposed to be dormant for a while. So all that energy could muster up for, for positivity. And we wouldn't be able to protest and do things like that if we were all at work. So, you know, totally trying, to teach, trying to teach the kids, I said, you're living through a global pandemic and a national revolution, go get your journal because this is big and you're going to make history. You know, your grandkids are going to ask you about this. So write it down. Yeah. And I think also it's a, it's a, you know, call to action for everyone to really challenge yourself to be on the right side of history for this kind of a moment. You know, what are you doing? You're right. I mean, I said this before, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter somehow in the papers have completely erased the global pandemic. Um, I said this before, if you're not going to pick up the paintbrush or pick up the guitar or go work out or whatever now in this moment where you've got 15 weeks stuck in your house, you're probably not going to do it. So I think keeping um, busy and really prioritizing, you know, getting off the phones and, you know, prioritizing what it is that you want to do. When else in the history of the world, hopefully in our lifetimes, um, will we ever have a get, a get a chance to, you know, plan a production or plan who you want to be with like a year's worth of a runway? Yeah. Um, that's like the, the thing I keep telling all the shows and projects I'm working on you know, we get a chance to really think about a whole new way to run up to it. And um, that's actually thrilling to think about. That door's open. My kid's trying to come in from the outside. Um, you know, and so that's actually really, really thrilling. And so I, I've, and that's another thing that really um, motivated me to have this conversation is trying to reach out to members of small communities and, and students to think about um, this is going to be a seismic shift, hopefully, in people's thinkings and their, and their ability to plan who they want to be. And mm. this is the moment where you get a chance to like put that hard work in. Um, so I certainly have been doing it. Um, and to study, to study, you know, there as we're watching God and to revisit some of the, the I just I unearthed that book from my bookshelf after forever and showing my kids about Henrietta Lacks and documentaries about who made them and who shaped them in black culture and you know and it, i don't know that we would have been able to do that had we had a full plate of of soccer and academia and everything else that we normally have going like i said at 100 miles an hour so totally. you know I, like i said i'm a, I'm a believer and i think god is definitely uh in the in the details in this one but and it's funny that i was watching a jimmy fallon interview at Lynn manuel and he asked him you know so are you working on your next big great great project and he had been maybe a week into COVID. he's like i'm just trying to learn how to homeschool a toddler like i could have taken this a little bit at a time yeah. but we're do we're doing better we're doing okay it depends on the day uh over here I, you would have been very proud mansfield has come a long way i don't live in mansfield anymore but i i saw as what was it 400 something people gathered uh in a peaceful protest and what a sight to see how how diverse the town has come and, and had become and how how positive uh a change they're making it's just awesome and all led by a 17 year old girl i believe correct me if i'm wrong but 17 year old girl high school senior who missed out on her senior year and misses out on graduation and prom and whatnot and instead takes all that energy and creates this massive peaceful protest 17. Wow. I'd like Amazing. to know if she's a, if a theater girl. I'll have to try to dig that info up. 
but uh i'm glad to know you're well i'm glad to know the kids are well um your wife does she is she able to travel and because where's her well, home i i don't have a wife anymore we made two children and then we got a divorce we still remain very very close and we co-parent beautifully but i have a partner now okay. um and she um she actually is not here she had to fly to la she's a um she's a writer producer actress and mm -hmm. she um had to fly to LA to care for her family and it'll be back in two weeks. But actually that's another amazing silver lining. Talk about the universe putting us all um, in this amazing place. My kids yeah. have, you know, we moved in together. I mean, we were buying an apartment anyway, but we, we moved in together. It's been like this amazing, you know, interesting stew. And my ex-wife, uh, my kid's mom, um, we're all in like, we're about closed circle with her and her boyfriend. It's like a very, it's like sitcom ready. Uh, no, that's good. the way it should be. I, as one who has a multitude of divorces in my family, I, it is, it, it, it makes sense to nobody else outside the circle, but you, and it doesn't need to, you know, and it's, it well, it's complicated. You know, Marta, my partner, she had to go fly to LA and she flew with a hazmat mask, a shield, gloves, raincoat. I'm not kidding. Um, there were six people on her plane, by the way. Um, so oh, thank you. No, thank see. you. And you yeah. said you were a germaphobe before this. Was that uh, going back to high school? I don't remember you necessarily being germaphobe. Wait, I to, oh, I wasn't a germaphobe. I wasn't a germaphobic then. I was just like, you know how they have these restaurant ratings, A, B, C, D. I, I think life's too short for a B. I'm not going anywhere where there's food poisoning involved. And I, <laughs> and I like, I like to wash my hands. And I, I was like, you know, I had a couple of bad food poisoning experiences when I moved to New York City. And I was like, um, when I heard there was a thing that could be passed like that, um, you know, I started washing my, I was, I was really good at washing my hands before this all well, went down. I got to ask, you said you were at a, I think you said it was a Hamilton rehearsal or something. And you, you said you had an, an idea that this is going to be bad. So was there rumblings? Well, I mean, I think that like, you know, one of the things about America in general is we have so much hubris. And like, even though our education system is something like 15th in the world in math and, you know, 11th in the world in verbal, we think we're number one in everything. And yeah. so I'm watching the news and I'm like a science geek and I'm like a stats guy, um, even though, of course, I make emotional things. Um, and I was like watching and there was a hotspot in Seattle and there was a hotspot in, um, in New Rochelle, New York, which is like, you know, 10 miles away from where I live. And I watched every day and, you know, CNN and other news outlets were kind of running like, what is this, you know, coronavirus thing? And I thought, there's no possible way. I've, I've seen what happened in China. I'm actually in the middle of working on a project that the writer director um, are, he is, an, he is a, a Chinese guy. And um, I had a FaceTime with him because he was of course in China. Um, a couple of weeks earlier, and they were already quarantined, and it hadn't yet gotten to America, or maybe there's the first case in Seattle. And I thought, China is a massive, massive country, landmass-wise. And he was quarantined, and he showed me out his window, and there wasn't a person on the street. And yeah. I thought, this is not going to go well. And yes. you know, I remember the producer of our show saying, "The only virus is fear." The only virus is fear. And I thought, no, no, there's actually a virus. What does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah. he was, you know, listen, he's a producer of like a $30 million Broadway show. He did not want to see the show get shut down. And I think that yeah. everyone just assumed, well, it's not going to happen to me. Um, I lost my uncle um, to, to COVID-19 
because he was one of those people who, you know, lived in Yonkers, New York, and he couldn't get a bed. And he was, you know, in one of those horrible cases where he was at risk and he got the virus and couldn't get a bed and couldn't get a room and couldn't get treatment and he passed away. And so, you know, I think one of those things that when you look at those numbers, we're so used to, um, through video games and, you know, movies and Hollywood sensationalizing all this stuff. We're so used to human death on a scale. You know, we're talking about 9-11. That killed, you know, 2,000 people. Um, This has killed, you know, 120,000 people in this country alone. And what you don't realize is the exponential, you know, um, magnitude of every one of those people as a whole family, a community and everything else. This is like on the, you know, it, it, not to say that 9-11 was a, wasn't a horrible thing because it was, but this dwarfs it on such a staggering scale that it's almost impossible to quantify. So, um, you know, the only virus is fear is like an insanely stupid thing to say. Um, you know, when you, when you think about that. No, I, boy, I, this is getting dark and weird, isn't I it? I know. We'll, we'll, we'll lighten it up. But I, I first of all, I'm sorry about I'm sorry about the loss of your uncle, and uh, it hit home for us big time too. And we'd be remiss if we didn't bring it up. I mean, it's it's we're facing it. This is our our life right now. So obviously, we have to go there. But uh, I, like I said, I think it's going to bring out some uh, some light. We're just going to have to take some time to see it in a bigger picture. And Americans can be so myopic. Everybody's so you know closed in. And I think once we see this on a bigger meta scale, we'll hopefully see that each one of those lives had a ripple effect and it wasn't just a number. I think the saddest thing is going to be when this thing, all the dogs that have been adopted and that are getting trained at home. And then like when their, their families go back to work and school, the dogs are going to like need serious medication. Think about it. It's going to be like, I mean, any new dog is totally screwed for the rest of their life. They're going to have like have the a, most my, separation anxiety. My vet that's what, that's what I keep thinking about. Oh, my, my vet calls it the COVID puppies, COVID puppy syndrome. And I've got one. We got a, we got a puppy in January, right before this all hit. It's not going to um, be good, okay. guys. I know my time's going to fly with you. So I'm going to have to make, make do to, to, for this, this little time. And then we'll connect afterward. Um, so I definitely want to keep talking. But I want to ask you and tell you a couple of things. First of all, Lisa uh, Orchard Nielsen, I don't know if that name rings a bell, but you went to high school together and she said this, she said, Dear David, when you were a senior in high school and I was a tiny little freshman, you completely built up my confidence during band and choir. You were never afraid to give thoughtful and kind words of praise and cheered me along. I want you to know that these moments stuck with me throughout the years while I became a performer and a teacher. Do you have any words for our students that are coming up in the theater and music world to cheer them along. I would love nothing more than to pass them along to my drama club from an old friend. Best, Lisa Orchard Nielsen. Oh, first of all, thank you. I see you on my screen, which is exciting. I'm on an iPad. You're on the, you're in like the, the Jan Brady spot or someone. I don't know where you are. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, hello. Good to see you. Um, you know, my advice is is similar because I feel like it works. Um, I, I, and that's why things like this are a little bit weird. I know people are kind of interested in the path that I took. The path that I took is not a path that can be recreated because, you know, I lived it and so it's not for others. But to me, what has worked is, um, you know, the more you can read, the more you can see, you know, television shows, movies, um, and the more you can travel, you know, I, I always talk about imagination like it is a fountain 
And um, when you travel, you fill up that fountain, you know, you fill it up with water and the verse can be bigger and more interesting. And then you use it up. You know, I feel like my work looks varied and interesting, but the truth is there's about six ideas in there. They're just repurposed and kind of there are different veneers over it. Um, And so I always feel like, and of course it's hard to travel right now, but you know, traveling, meeting people. um, When I moved to New York, um, the technical director at my um, college said to me, I have two pieces of advice. He had worked in uh, New York for 25 years before he became a professor. And he said, on every street corner, you know, walk with your head up, not down. So many people kind of do this as they walk down the street corner. On every street corner, there is someone more and less fortunate than you. There is, um, you know, some amazing like three-part rock opera going on on every single street corner. Learn from the people around you. It's the most amazing, incredible place. And the other piece of advice he said is never eat, no matter how hungry you are, never eat a, a knish from a street vendor which I thought was like the weirdest thing, but clearly had a bad time. That's where I got oh, the food poisoning thing. I've um, done it, really. I've done it with mustard. So he's like, just no matter how hungry you are. But the truth is, I think like when we as creatives, um, you know, in the theater or in anywhere in entertainment, it's all about storytelling. You know, my way in has been through physical space, but an actor has to learn how to, you know, embody a certain character. Writers write what they know. Directors have to learn how to like work through time and space and character development um, and plot. And we all are telling a story um, through, you know, certain guardrails. And so I feel like the more you become adept at communicating and the more you become a student of life, you know, I consider myself a storyteller, but I really think I'm a behavioral scientist. You know, I'm a behavioral psychologist. I think about how people move through space and what would make things easy for them to interact with and what would make things difficult for them to interact with and what's interesting about that. And I think making sure that your students like open their eyes and open their hearts and open up their spirits to new and interesting experiences. I mean, you wrote me that beautiful letter and like the truth is you remembered something that happened 30 years ago. That's an important, you know, touchstone um, moment. And so I think being open to those things, you know, I think there's a famous quote, which I'm sure I will butcher, about traveling. And if you only, every place that you go is like, if life is a book, every place you go is another page, right? And so if you never go anywhere, you've only read one page. And I think anyone that has ever traveled to anywhere different from where you grew up, um, you can see that all the pages are so different and beautiful and interesting. And so I think just mine that material for new stuff. That's the biggest thing. The rest of it is like technical and there are ways to cover those weaknesses, but opening up your mind as a creative storyteller is the thing. Okay. Um, and let me see, gosh, was that a half an hour? Did a half an hour go by so fast? Yeah. Well, who cares about quarantine, Nicole? Jeez, was- enough already. That was too fast, my friend. All right, so um, I'm gonna hand you it to you. You got my number. Yes, I, I will, we'll, we'll talk more. Um, you know, I love you. I have amazing memories, amazing of, of our MHS years that shaped me. And uh, I love every single bit of the history that we made together. And I'm gonna hand this down to Dory. She, Marsha or Jan now, I don't know, I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, David. I am so excited to um, ask you these questions that I put together. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for your time. Thank you very sure. much. So my first question for you, early in my career, I reconciled the theater 
as a suitable church for me, more so than the church of my upbringing. And it was a place where I felt at home, I felt useful, and I felt whole, connected to something bigger than myself. And I'm curious as to how you experience the creative process. Um, well, I, you know, relate to that. I grew up as like one of three Jews in Mansfield, the other two being my sisters. Um, so <laughs> I, I was like, what is this place? And, you know, how do I fit in? Um, uh, I, I do think there's a thing, you know, Barbara Trombley, who was our theater teacher and choir director, you know, she always would talk about this feeling that you would get when you were performing um, that I think was a very impactful you know, I was a big athlete growing up, and I think that there's a similar feeling for an athlete, kind of um, this improvisation. You might have a play that you're thinking about, but, um, you know, trying to execute, but there's an improv that happens in real-time experiences, and that's what live events give you as well. That is a spiritual kind of connectivity. Mm -hmm. um, there is a thing that happens on a live event that, you know, even if you say the words exactly the same way and you execute the scene changes the same way and it's a different audience, it's a different chemical makeup and it is a kind of spiritual connectivity. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I obviously see the resemblance. I felt the resemblance and I, you know, make my living, you know, uh, tweaking that resemblance to kind of get what I want. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what we do as performers. We kind of like take all of the, things that all of the tools that we have and we like mad scientists sprinkle in a little more of this or a little more of that to make our audiences feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, there are no, you know, what I've learned over the years is audiences together and collectively are smarter than one single individual. You can mm -hmm. tell that when someone like one person laughs at a joke in the theater and then like the rest of everyone laughs, it's not because they're sheep following you know, the leader, it's because you see in that response, oh yeah, right, I thought that was funny too. There's a permission. That's the same thing in church or temple or synagogue or mosque or anything else. There mm -hmm. is a spirituality to that. Mm -hmm. And it's like something gets transpired between the performers and the audience that can never be recaptured. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like the closest thing to spirituality I've ever found. Sure, thank you. Um, sure. My next question is stage director Ariana Muchkin. I'm probably saying her name wrong, but she has a famous quote, people should leave the theater more human than when they came in. I wanna know how that quote hits you and what has been a memorable or rewarding audience reaction to your work and what experiences do you um, work to provide your audience? And I would just like to say that I wrote this question before I watched one of your TED Talks which really clarified the answer, but I still want to ask it because I think it's really interesting. Well, I mean, that, that question is a, that's a doozy. There's like four parts to it. So I know, the first part, I know, I snuck it in. Um, so, I mean, I would say, listen, I think, you know, the theater changing you is the truth. When you're writing a story or you're telling a story, you know, the protagonist has to change, right? No, no one going through a story can stay the same at the end or else it's not an interesting story, right? So I think the audience is the same way. You come in one way and you need to um, witness the protagonist go through change and then um, you will feel change yourself. So that's sort of an obvious piece to the puzzle. Um, you know, with regard to um, what it is that, I, you know, like an amazing audience response that I've seen, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, 25 years. Wow. Um, I have witnessed some 
really emotionally impactful moments. I can tell you, um, I was in tech rehearsal for Dear Evan Hansen the night of the election in 2016, Trump versus Clinton, and everyone left thinking we're gonna have a female president. And then the next day we didn't have a female president. And what that audience relationship was, um, was unbelievable. I can tell you that I've had experiences. Hamilton, which is a show that I worked on, became, you know, we all thought that Hamilton was a show about America then, you know, performed by what America looks like now. And after the 2016 election, the day after the election, that show became in a way a period piece mm -hmm. because we really had like a gut check moment of maybe this isn't what America looks like now. Um, certainly the voices that rang true on election night in 2016 were not the voices that we saw on stage. I was also there when Mike Pence was in the audience and the performers of Hamilton decided to have a open and candid conversation with him and then watched all that ensue. I was also in the audience when Barack Obama, I was two rows away from him when he watched Hamilton and I witnessed the first and only African-American president watch an African-American man portray George Washington stepping down, teaching the country how to lead. And I remember, you know, watching him watch that number. And it was like, the, and everyone in the room was like, oh my God, Barack Obama is watching Chris Jackson sing like one last time. And this thing about someone stepping down so that the rest of the country and the rest of history could step in line and learn how to govern ourselves. And it was like, Staggering, you know. Um, I've also been in audiences where like stuff gets really messed up, mm -hmm. you know. Actors drop lines, scenery breaks, horrible things happen. You know, I did a show <laughs> where Patty Lapone, of all people, um, it, you know, we she was riding out on a piece of scenery. It tracked off stage. Um, something backstage didn't move properly, and she almost got killed from a thing that I designed. And you know, oh. screams and yells and it was okay. But like, imagine, you know, for like 38 seconds, I thought I killed Patti LuPone. <laughs> it <Wow>. wasn't <laughs> the highlight of my career. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of different things, but I think that like, you know, sometimes the most interesting things that happen are the ones that you're not even aware that they're happening. Mm -hmm. You know, to, mm -hmm. speaking to the TED talk, you know, a lot of, um, what I try and do is, um, you know, I talk a lot about implicit bias and color theory and line and perspective and taking all the things that I know work on people and tweaking them to get what I want. Basically, every single design is like a way to Jedi mind trick you into like thinking a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. So um, with regard to that, I think that like, you know, that's the kind of mad scientist part of our um, jobs. When you, you know, when you watch Hamilton, we want you to think it's an important story. We want you to feel more American and smarter and, you know, that this is an important, substantial work of art. And we've obviously succeeded in that because there are two things that you kind of, that the general public feels about that show. Number one, it's hard to get a ticket and it's expensive. But number two, that if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> right? You're like, well, I didn't like it, but I know that I'm wrong. You know, that's like, there's a lot of different levers that we're pulling to make the thing feel important with a capital I. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's the kind of mad scientist bar. That's the thing that's like most fun for me, really. Thank you. Um, 
my next question is, there is a funny story about stage director Anne Bogart, who says that when she's sitting in the theater watching a rehearsal and things are not going well, she stands up and says, I have an idea. She has absolutely no idea, but she thinks that by the time she gets to the foot of the stage, an idea will come and it always does. And I just wanted to ask you about that story. What do you do for creative inspiration? You know, I'm looking around for um, a piece of wood to knock on. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are writers. They oftentimes go through writer's block. I have, um, so far, um, I have kind of a boundless imagination. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all my ideas are winners. I, mm -hmm. I have plenty of terrible ideas. But what I normally do is um, give myself a minute. You know, it's really hard to schedule a time to be creative. I run an office. Um, we have a lot of people working there. We have a lot of, it's a deadline-based industry. You know, for me, um, I used to go running, you know, to try and get a little oxygen. Lots of great ideas come in the shower, but the truth is my, my fountain of ideas has not run dry. Mm -hmm. um, and I trust, I trust um, my mind that I'm going to be able to like spit out some good ideas. The, and that, that really and truly, that's not the case, you know, for everyone. But for me, it's, le it's more about the process of, um, of kind of curating the ideas that pop up and mm -hmm. thinking, well, I've heard that. That's a terrible one. I, I see that. That's never going to work. It's not feasible. This one, there might be a germ of something interesting. But I think the best ideas are the worst ideas, mm -hmm. right? I mean, think about it. You know, if someone said to you, like, let's go put a man on the moon, you know, that would have seemed like a really dumb idea, except it wasn't in, in the rearview mirror. I, I saw that with Hamilton, you know. No one would have greenlit that if that was a movie pitch, mm -hmm. you know. A bunch of people who um, are minorities dressed up like, you know, the founding fathers of our country told with hip hop music, right? And now it's made more money than like any Broadway show has tracked, you know, in the history of the planet. Now, you know, so it's like, what that sounds like a, well, what, it might sound like a bad idea, but what about it is a good idea. And so mm -hmm. I start to just spit things out in the spirit of no bad ideas. Yeah. William Ball talks about that. He says, I always, when people give me their ideas, I always listen. Of and course. Go, 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 go. Because eventually they'll download the gold. They'll download yep. the gold. Um, so as a designer, what is the most useful information a director can provide you? And what is unhelpful? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, before I read anything, a script or, you know, a, a screenplay or anything like that, I always ask the director for like a couple sentences. They don't need to give me like a big long missive or you know anything about like here's what I think it's going to be, but just a couple sentences to frame it for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the director is inevitably the the arbiter of taste and the kind of like um, going to be like due north of what direction we're going to go. Um, if you're Romeo and Ju if you're doing Romeo and Juliet and they say I want to set this in you know 1920s, then like that's your that's where you're headed. Mm -hmm. um, I like to hear that. But then I like to kind of read the script and let it wash over me a couple times, just like a meditation and just like um, understand for myself what I think it is. I, I had to make a decision a long time ago um, to either be a yes person or a me person. And what I mean by that is 
a lot of people, I think, govern their um, lives with fear. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I've read somewhere, you know, there's a really in the end only two motivations and two emotions, and they are love and fear. And you mm-hmm. do things, everything drills down to that. When I'm a collaborator on a project, I have to choose love, meaning I have to embrace the fact that someone has hired me and not the other person. Um, and um, and so as opposed to saying, yes, Kanye West, I think that's an amazing idea. Right. I could say, I actually think that, like, tell me more about what you're getting at. What is it that you want people to feel? Let me understand what the thing is that you're trying to accomplish. And just trust the fact that, like, he hired me to be in the room because he respected me and my opinion and all that I am. And not just say, yeah, 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 that sounds like a great idea. Because what you have to realize is these people are not your friends. They are going to ask you to do, you know, the impossible for the ungrateful. You know, that's just the deal. And... And I think you have to learn how to like trust your instinct and be um, kind of director proof. You have right. to like say, tell me the direction we're going in. And then like, let me trust the fact that you want to hear from me. Right. I read somewhere Americans are addicted to agreement. And the problem with that is that if we don't have that kind of creative tension, because that, that's where the good stuff can really come from, is that disagreement and that tension, right? So thank you. Totally. Um, sure. Are there... I'm sure there are, but are there personal sacrifices that you have made to sustain a New York career? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I get asked a, a version of that question um, seen through the eyes of the, the person asking frequently, you know, young designers, young creatives asking me, you know, should I move to New York? What do I do? And, I, and my feeling is if you don't have to live in New York, meaning if you don't have like the ego that, tells you I need to work on the original production of this thing or the first ever version of this or the world premiere of that, you can make a living in the arts anywhere. There's obviously a higher volume of projects happening here or there than anywhere else and all of that. But um, I originally moved to New York because I didn't know where else I could go and all of the connections that I was making at Williamstown Theater Festival and in the training programs that I went to after high school and college and beyond were all connections to New York. and then the woman that I met and married, you know, was from New York. So we, you know, we're going to build a life in New York. Um, but if you, the design challenges for a play or a musical or a, whatever are the exact same, whether you live in Milwaukee or Kansas or LA or London or anywhere else. It's just that the world premiere work happens in New York. And so for me, I got into that system. It's, it's incredibly challenging living in New York. Um, but I remember when my oldest daughter was about four or five years old, she was studying Jackson Pollock in preschool. And, um, and uh, I said, let's get into a taxi. We went to a taxi. We drove to MoMA into the room where there were four big Jackson Pollock paintings. And there were these um, three um, Japanese women who were crying in the room and my daughter was like nervous and scared and like what's wrong with them and i approached and i said you know are you okay and they said in perfect english we waited our entire lives to get into this room and i thought you know we zipped down in a taxi and were there in nine minutes and got to moma and so there are these things that happen in new york city it's one of the things that's most challenging in the coronavirus you ask yourself if you don't have culture and experience and restaurants and the people what do you have you just got like big bills but as far as a career in the arts, if you don't have to be in the epicenter, you could be anywhere. 
Um, so as an artist, what do you view as most important or perhaps a leading, uh, a leading quality? Imagination, curiosity, research, observation, collaboration. Well, if you, if, if you're talking about theater film or, you know, not what I would call not a fine art, a fine art is what I would call sculpting, painting, dance, something that you could do on your own. Yes, you're, think, you're art, David, a designer. You're a designer. Um, I, I think we are collaborative artists. So if you can't collaborate, you're, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. Um, I think all of the things that you mentioned, creativity, collaboration, observation, they're important. To me, the number one skill is communication. And what I mean by that is kind of like omnidirectional, multifaceted. You have to hear what the director is saying or the writer or the composer is saying. They're, they're, and not everyone is like, you know, silver tongued, completely articulate. Some people don't, you know, don't articulate themselves well verbally. Um, you have to be able to hear it and synthesize the information you're hearing. And then something that's trapped in your head that you can't put down on paper is also not useful. I started out my career, I could not draw. I can barely draw still. But I had to learn how to take what was in here and put it onto a piece of paper. And so research became important, um, you know, other ways to communicate. That's why I developed a sense of verbal skill because I was able to say, this is what I really mean. This horrible doodle is meant to say, you know, it's an eight foot tall doorway. Um, and, and being then, once you've kind of got community buy-in on what the project that you're designing wants to look like, then there's this whole other level, which is probably the most tricky, is how to get the hundreds of craftspeople, artisans, builders, painters, welders, technicians who are building the thing and willing it into existence to actually understand what this little doodle or this set of drafting was supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And that communication is huge it, you know and that's why when you go to the theater you see a movie you think it doesn't look that good it's not because it didn't look good in the designer's head it's because they couldn't get the people working on it to like get it and to like take what was up here and make it you know supersized so how did you do that with hamilton um you know i think that the the you know listen the, the set design for hamilton um is not a real place. Um, right. I, I, I attack every project um, as though the design is going to be a real place. So I think Hamilton spans over 30 years, there's 51 songs, there's 26,000 words, there's probably 100 locations in the play. I researched every one of those rooms and every one of those locations as if we were gonna make the feature film hyper-realistic version. But then I broke down the script and thought, what's the bare minimum we need? We're not gonna go to the Schuyler mansion in the show. We're gonna show like a bench and nothing else. But the metaphor, like in theater, we work in metaphor frequently. The metaphor for the design of Hamilton is, we are telling the story not of the people who built the country or built the foundation of the country, but we are telling the story of the people who created the framework from which the people who are the Americans. And so what I wanted to do was create something that felt foundational and permanent and like forever, like the, the substance of the, the country. And then we put this kind of wooden scaffolding, you know, around it as if to say, work is being done here. This is an aspirational space. This is a space that is being built up. Um, 
And I took like, it was sort of a tapestry of early American architecture. So I researched the way that wood went together, the, the types of um, carpenters of the time were all people who built ships. So all of the joints in the wood are all shipbuilding methodology. All of the ropes and all of that stuff are the actual ways in which things were built there. And then, you know, I showed exhaustive amounts of research um, and I basically stood over the shoulder of the artisans and the painters and the craftspeople and helped, you know, um, make sure that the thing looked in real life what I had imagined it would mind. I mean, we made, we made renderings and drafting. We took pictures. We painted, you know, paint elevations to guide people. But in the end, it was a whole lot of, especially the off-Broadway production, you know, myself and my associate built a lot of it. We stood there and coiled that rope and we painted those boards and we carved that brick and we put that thing together. Wow, thank you. Sure. Um, if you were going to write a book, what would the focus be? Um, I actually have been approached to write a book. Mm -hmm. um, and cover your ears. The book is going to be called Mindfuck, How to Design the World to Get What You Want. Oh, I like it. Very cool. Um, sorry for the swear, guys. Um, but, the, but the idea is, um, you know, I was sort of talking about it a little bit earlier. I, I studied for years um, implicit bias. And implicit bias is the thing you've probably heard on the news. It's one of those things like think on your inside, inside your mind, but you're not aware that you're thinking it. It's mm -hmm. the thing that makes police officers often shoot African-American people and not white people, right? Mm -hmm. There's an implicit bias, um, but there are many implicit biases, not just race. There are implicit biases about men and women, sexual orientation, things that are tall, things that are short, things that are overweight, things that are old. And so I've studied this deeply. I, I found um, uh, that uh, there's something called the IAT test. It's an implicit bias test. You can actually scientifically prove your biases. And I thought that was so fascinating. So between studying that and feng shui and color theory and other kind of design ideas, um, I have spent a career um, over two decades um, using those implicit biases to make people feel what we want them to feel. And I can give you some examples of that. People, I know this sounds horrible, people respect tall people more than short people, fit people more than not fit people, men more than women, right? All these horrible things that you wouldn't want to be true, but they are true. Um, but when you're a designer, you're a creative, you get to use those biases to elicit certain responses. Here's a, here's a version. Why does Darth Vader wear black and carry a red lightsaber? Because black is the color of evil. Why is that the case, right? Well, we're mammals, we we're not nocturnal, we respond to the day in a different way than we respond to night. We're scared of the dark. Um, you know, that's why the evil character wears that, col that color. Dorothy wears like a gingham blue dress. We're attracted to the sky, sky blue, right? There are these obvious things that are implicit biases that people are not aware of. So the book would be how to design the world to get what you want, mm -hmm. right? If you want to control the boardroom and you want to see and you want to feel empowered, you should put your chair a couple of inches higher than the people in the boardroom and you will feel in control. And they will subconsciously go, why do I always look up to Michael Horrigan? Well, because he's like so tall up in the screen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you, very interesting. Um, I have one more question and we have two more minutes. 
Um, how do you balance honoring the creative process with the demands of getting your job done? And how in New York theater is the balance between art and business maintained? Um, well, listen, I, I think that there um, is a perception in the world that somehow reviews, um, you know, drive business. It's not true. Wicked is one of the biggest box office, you know, successes in the history of theater. It got B minus at best reviews. Um, I think if you are driven by commercial success, you're in deep trouble. You know, see the aforementioned thing of like, no one thought that the idea of Hamilton on the page would be a good idea. Um, not, no one would think that Dear Evan Hansen would be a good idea. I mean, a story about like a kid that like committed suicide and like, you know, like a troubled kid who tells a lie. Like it's not, you know, on its face, a great commercial endeavor. Um, I learned early on, if I like it and the people that hired me like it, good enough. There's always gonna be 12 people in the audience that think your work is terrible. There's always gonna be 12 people in the audience who think everything you do is like vanilla ice cream. It's like, you know, who cares? Um, you don't need reviews, what you need is a word of mouth. I mean, another show that I did is Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice got bad reviews in, um, in Washington, D.C. Like, objectively bad reviews. Like, please don't come to New York City you're dead on arrival. We came to New York City, we made a lot of changes. And, um, you know, between TikTok and Instagram and a young audience, um, it got massive traction. And the thing is, there's only one review that matters, which is, would you recommend it? Would you recommend it? Because your word is what you've got. And, you know, the, the theater industry and entertainment industry has no shortage of, you know, um, options to see, mm -hmm. but would you recommend it? And Beetlejuice is unlike any other show on Broadway, truly, and it's fun, and it's hard to not recommend it. It's funny, it's touching, it's big, it's lavish, and so in my mind, it's like, if I could recommend it to someone, that's what drives me. Mm -hmm. Not, It's not about commercial success. Cool. I think, Dana, are we ready to take some questions from the crowd? Okay, awesome. So I'm seeing a question here from Olivia Pierce, and she writes, what is a show you've always wanted to design the set for? A broad, um, and she's referring to a Broadway revival. Is there a Broadway revival you would like to design? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I grew up listening to like all the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Fiddler on the Roof also comes to mind. Um, not necessarily because of these design challenges, but because I just remember like mowing my lawn, you know, being like that geeky theater kid, like listening to like show tunes. Um, I always wanted to design Carousel, but um, there have been a couple of really amazing revivals of that. So that's probably not coming around anytime soon. Um, I actually, I'm not going to tell you which one, but I actually have just been offered the job to um, design a pretty major revival of a show. And I, it had never been on my radar. And in fact, it was a show that I um, didn't really know. But when it came to me, I thought, oh my God, I've never designed a, a musical revival ever. So I suppose my short answer is any, but now I got one. So look for it in 2022. Cool. Nice. Yeah. We have a question from um, Michael Makuchi from Walnut Hill. 
and he asks, how do you approach a script with many locations that don't seem to have a natural flow? Well, that's, that gets back to that Hamilton problem. You know, I think what I do this thing called a scene breakdown and it's not original to me. Almost every designer does it. Mm -hmm. If you figure out the least amount that you need to put into each scene, for instance, this scene right now is me talking to my iPad, sitting at a table with a chair, there's a screen door there, there's a chandelier over my head. All I need to do this scene is me and this iPad. Yes, I could have the table and the chair, but I don't need it, right? And so I kind of make a laundry list in order of what the least amount that I need. And then if you do that and you kind of distill and crystalline, crystally, uh, crystallize every single detail of the scene. Now, if I picked up my iPad and threw it through the window and smashed my iPad, I would need the window, right? The window becomes part of the story. But if the window is just there and I'm looking out it and I never refer to it and I never touch it, I might not need it. And so I do this, this scene breakdown to figure out the least amount needed. And then I kind of like jigsaw puzzle it. Well, I know I need a window three times. Okay, it seems like the window is going to be in there. I know I might want a window, but I don't necessarily need that. And that's the kind of thinking that I do in every project. And so you create a, um, like a, a little tiny list of things you must have. And you have to think about like needs versus wants. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and the other question that he had is, how did you figure out the process in Beetlejuice, changing the house multiple times? There's a lot to change each time. It must be choreographed with every detail. Um, I wish I could just tell you it's theater magic and we wave <laughs> our wands. Um, sure. It's not the case. I, 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 um, I didn't really figure it out. I knew what I needed. And I work with this um, genius associate. His name is Rod Lemon. He and I have worked together for 20 years, but also the scene shop that built it is, you know, incredibly adept. Basically, um, we figured out a system that the only thing that didn't change is the floor and the ceiling and the one surface of the walls. And then we basically made these amazingly well executed magnetized pieces that you know, we snap in behind, we drop down a curtain, we keep playing the scene and we bring in all these big, huge pieces and we put them against the wall. We get rid of all the furniture, the doors, the window treatments and the chandeliers. And so it looks like a complete change. But if you look closely at the design, the ceiling and the floor and the back section of the walls remain. So the physical piece maintains its integrity. Um, and then it's just about like, essentially like fancy toppings on the cupcake. Thank you. This question is from Amit Mir. Speaking of Beetlejuice with the tour coming, is there a difference between designing for a touring production and a sitting production? Also, what thoughts come to mind as possible issues to tackle when taking a show on the road? So truck space, truck space, truck space. Um, when you tour something, my goal and the goal of everyone that sends out a tour is to try and make the ending visual result be the thing that you see on Broadway. Um, that's the goal. It doesn't always seem like that, but what you have to do is figure, touring shows move in on a Sunday and they open to an audience on a Tuesday. So you have about 10 hours to load in the set, take it off the trucks, stand it up. And so there's a lot of different engineering that happens and there's obviously a, a lot of different methodologies with regard to building. You know, the Hamilton set on stage at, at the Richard Rogers on Broadway is like, you know, big, heavy, crazy, you know, permanent stuff. 
the floor that we take on the tour is re-engineered. It basically rolls off and, and goes together in a matter of like six hours. And then a lot of the stuff is soft. It rolls up. It gets Velcroed onto frames that fly out. A lot of the, the different um, methodologies are, are different. But in the end, talk about Jedi mind tricking. We Jedi mind trick people into thinking it's the same thing because our goal is to deliver the same look, but the way it feels to the actor might be very different. Thank you. Um, let me see. Molly McDonald asked, what is the most unique part of the Mrs. Doubtfire set? Is there any piece of the design the audience should be most excited for to find? Um, I mean, I sprinkle every design I do with a bunch of like Easter eggs, like little things that if you know the show or the know the movie or, you know, you know me, I try and have like a subconscious dialogue with the audience all the time. Um, but, you know, the bigger, the, the, the bigger thing for Mrs. Doubtfire at least is um, I like the color story that we tell between the Hillard house, which is like mom's house and dad's house. Um, um, it's interesting to like think about, you know, what colors represent warmth and family. And, you know, I think Mrs. Doubtfire is a story about a divorced dad doing whatever he can to like be with his kids, right? That's the story. Um, to me, the thing that you should keep your eyes on is the like absolutely unreal performance that Rob McClure makes as Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, his performance is makes you forget about Robin Williams. And what's so amazing and incredible about it is as opposed to the movie, you watch him as a human suffer to put yeah. that stuff on and take it off and do all this stuff. And it's like the human pyrotechnics of just getting in and out of that costume and doing that before your eyes is like Thank extraordinary. You. Owen Parker asks, can you tell us a little bit about the pool that was cut from Hamilton? Totally. Um, research, uh, you know, I, Hamilton was one of the only founding fathers that didn't get a memorial. Um, you know, there's obviously the Washington Monument, there's the Lincoln, the, you know, the, 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 you know, Jefferson Memorial, there's all these memorials all over. And I took a trip to DC, but I also, you know, through a ton of research, um, it's interesting that Hamilton didn't get, Hamilton didn't get a memorial. Um, the idea came from at the end of the show, it would be interesting. If you go to DC, you see a trillion reflecting pools everywhere, all over the city. Um, we thought it'd be interesting to make a version of a reflecting pool. So in the end of the show, when they're asking the big question of who lives, who dies, who tells your story, Alexandra and Eliza somehow reunite in this magical place like of heaven or the other world or whatever you know, she living for another 50 years and he kind of like a specter of who he used to be. And there was this pool um, with this inky black water that was beautiful. And we played for three performances. Um, at the end of the show, the founding father should pull up this thing and move it. And it was like this amazing moment and the light would reflect off the water and hit them. And it was all very beautiful. But inevitably what happened was the question that you want to be thinking at the end of the show is who lives, who dies, who tells your story, you know, have I done enough for my legacy and all that. And in the end you were saying, is that real water? Are those things heavy? It, D David Corrin's put a pool on stage. You were asking all the wrong questions. Like, you know, and, and we were just like, we were putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong moment. And mm -hmm. so the director looked at me and said, we're cutting it. We're draining the pool and we played for another, you know, 
five months with a drained pool at center stage that no one ever knew about. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Can't I hit the bullseye a, every time, kids. You know what I'm saying? I have a um, question from uh, yeah, my yeah. daughter, actually. Olivia, age 13, almost 13. She wants to uh, pursue a career in, um, in singing. She's quite good, I will say, as a mom. But she asked me, when you're designing for a performance artist, do you kind of work around their set list or do you work around their personality? And second, uh, sometimes people don't say no to said celebrities. So in your job, you had mentioned earlier that you, know, you have to sort of say no, that something can't work sometimes with them. How, do, how does that work? She wants to know. Yeah, I, I, I have no problem saying no. Um, I, I just think like, we forget um, how much pressure you know, a Bruno Mars or a Lady Gaga or a Kanye West has on them. You know, Bruno Mars is 30 years old. Um, you know, he's one of arguably the most talented and popular songwriter that we have in America, pop music. And every tour he goes out on is like, you know, 100 million people will see it. So they're all over the place. They're busy making music. And again, like what, what is your lane? You have to be able to say no because you have to be able to help this person achieve what their goal is. And ultimately what their goal is that they're going to be able to like show this thing consistently to um, an audience um, properly. Um, I don't work around the set list because the set list changes all the time. There isn't a person who shows up unless they're lip, lip syncing that just does the same show every night. Um, you know, and especially someone like Bruno or Gaga, they're all over the place. You know, they might say, I'm throwing out all the new material I'm doing, you know, the top third is going to be new stuff and the rest is going to be greatest. It's all over the map. Um, so you don't work around that. But what I find the most interesting about working with artists like that is having the conversations about like, what was the inspiration behind the album? You know, every album is kind of like a story and we don't listen to music now the way we used to. We used to buy an album and listen to it top to tail. Now we do it, you know, a song gets released. If that song is popular, they release the next one, et cetera, et cetera. No one listens to the thing as like a story, but the writers, the musicians write it as a story. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the most interesting thing is having conversations about um, why they wrote this, why this album sounds differently, what it was they were going for, you know, I think back to um, Gaga's album, Joanne, which I worked with her on. She had a whole, she named it after her aunt that she never met that died of a disease before she was born. There was a picture of her up in her kitchen that she looked at for her whole life. It was her dad's sister. You know, she always had this picture of who Joanne was. You know, Joanne meant so much. None of that's in the album. But in the work that we did together, it was like unearthing this huge treasure chest of visual images. She said, growing up, I always thought that Joanne's name brought about flowers. The idea that she was like soft powder pink and that flowers because of the way that her parents talked about her. So that's actually really interesting to try and get to the bottom of that. Mm. The psychology behind it. Totally. Okay. I have a question here from Shane Settlemeyer. Which of your scenic designs changed the most from early concept to final result? Oh, wow. Um, wow, that's a really good question. Um, 
I'm not sure that the answer I'm going to give you is the truth, but I can tell you that um, I worked on the design for Beetlejuice for about five and a half years. And although we always knew that it was going to be a house um, of some sort, that one went through, you know, probably 40 permutations. Um, you know, hyper-realistic, uh, totally abstract, one cohesive house unit, multiple pieces, you know, all that different stuff. And so, um, it, you know, that one changed a, a bunch. And, and by the way, we work, you know, as do performers until someone says, put your pencils down, you know, the show is frozen. We work until the, the very last minute. And even from DC to New York, we changed it a lot. And even in previews and tech rehearsal, we changed it a lot. Thank you. And um, Dominic Arlia asks, were you able to work closely with Lady Gaga in the process of creating your collaborations? Very. Um, I mean, that's the kind of the weird thing, the kind of like out of body experience part of it is there is no go between, right? You there might be a go between of how they get to me. Um, but, you know, like, uh, when you're working with people, whether it's Mariah Carey or Lynn Manuel Miranda or anyone in between, you're just like sitting on their couch or they're sitting on your couch. Um, and you know, the more time you can spend with them, the more um, immersed you get into their mind frame and the more thinking that you do. And so the more you get to know them. Um, so much so that my kids played a prank on my girlfriend the other day, you know, I have all their cell phone numbers and my, my kids convinced my girlfriend that my youngest daughter, age 10, was texting with Gaga. And she believed it because we have her phone number. And so they went through this whole elaborate scheme um, only to like then out it that the 14 year old was texting, you know, was playing, was playing the joke. But um, yeah, you get to, you know, sit and figure it all out. I can remember the first, um, real design meeting I had with Mariah Carey was so interesting because I didn't know um, kind of what her life was before I met her and hearing how she felt kind of like a kept person and she was married to um, Tony Miola for all those years as big, big, powerful record executive. And she was with him from like the age of 18 or 19 and she had no idea how famous, how popular, how rich, how successful she was until she saw like a butterfly, you know, on their newel post at their house and she got out, she divorced him and then had no idea she had like 10 number one records before she left it. Like, so it's interesting, like hearing that from her, I had a picture of who she was in my mind, but then hearing from her, what it was like to find herself as a woman and as an artist and all that is like totally fascinating getting back to the psychology of trying to make spaces for these people. Mm -hmm. Toba Taloub asks, what was your favorite set that you've designed? Oh, uh, I don't have an answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I will tell you that, you know, I've been asked that question a lot. I think people all want to hear me say Hamilton. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I can't think of one. Um, I can tell you that when we did Grease Live, that was a very important moment for me because um, I knew with the presentation of it that we were going to change the game of what live musicals were on television, um, that we were changing the form of that entertainment. And that felt really exciting. Um, I can tell you that 
you know, between Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen back to back, what has been exciting is not necessarily design those shows, but kind of zeitgeist to be part of two shows that back to back won the Tony and then have revitalized um, the way that the country and the world see theater artists and see shows. When our parents or my parents were kids, superstar entertainers were theater people. You know, Richard Burton, like all these like, you know, famous people who would go on talk shows and like musical theater show songs were like top 10 on the radio. Then theater became wildly uncool, like when Nicole and I were doing theater and Patrick Horrigan and Michael Horrigan, not cool. But Hamilton and Dear Van Hansen has kind of made it cool again. Um, and like, look at Lynn, it's like, he's like truly a bona fide star, like full stop. And it's weird because his stardom, um, and it's strange because he's a friend, it's like, every single person, whether it's part of like the literati or pop culture or politicians or writers or regular people wanna be friends with him. And so theater is kind of back in the cool thing. That's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How many more times can I say cool in a sentence? Um, Ethan McKenna asks, how has the development of projection within theater changed your creative pro process and changed what is possible in set design? Um, I, I, I've never been, I, I, I used to not be a fan of projections as literal scenery. Like the idea of like, hey, I want to be in a library, let's project a picture of the library. I never thought that prescriptive imagery should be cinematic. I feel like if you want to go to the theater, you should go to the theater and you should, you should see something more metaphorical, more abstract, more interesting than that. Um, I think that no better tool than projection act as kind of a thumb uh, and descriptive in that way. So, you know, lights are hard to make look like clouds, as an example, right? Like lights are hard to show something that is more emotional and more um, multi-dimensional, but projections are incredible, um, an incredible tool in that way. And so I've started to think about it more like if you can do any other way to not have it be a projection, you should. But when you need projections, they, there are almost no tools in the world more um, successful at what they're trying to do. Thank you. And um, I think this will probably close us out, but I just wanted to ask, I know that we spoke about this at the beginning of the interview, but pertaining directly to theater, theaters have been hard hit by COVID, harder than even restaurants in terms of when we can come back. What do you think theater will look like in the near future? Um, you know, I, uh, as I said, I'm the eternal optimist. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you mean by near future. Yeah. So um, I think if you think, if you, if you think the near future is any time before a vaccine, um, I think theater doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I am obviously fully entrenched in the um, live event, um, experiential, theatrical world, and I'm having incredibly high-level conversations with people, including, you know, Dr. Fauci's lead associate, you know, to, to get the science of it. I don't think there's any way that theater can successfully do what we do without socially, you know, uh, and, and socially distanced. It doesn't mm -hmm. work. It's right. not going to work. So 
if the near future is before the vaccine, I think we don't have a future. Okay. Um, I think, uh, and that is quote unquote traditional theater. There's some really interesting stuff like um, I saw there was a, 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 an immersive experience that's happening in cars on upstate New York where you're driving down a road and you're in your own car and you come upon a scene that's happening and then you watch that scene play out and you go down another road to another scene and things like that totally happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's going to be really, really interesting. The, the truth is you are, um, we cannot have a musical without the musicians having no mask and um, no, uh, you know, they've got to be able to play their instruments. Mm -hmm. They've got to be in a pit together. We can socially distant backstage, but we can't really perform that way. Right. And so until there is testing, um, daily testing, uh, we, have no, we have no jobs. And then uh, this was a two-part question, so I asked the first one. How do you see the performing arts responding to society's call for social justice and equality? What do you think will change? Um, Oh, what do I think will change? Hopefully everything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think that traditionally the world has looked to um, storytellers and member of the, members of the entertainment industry, even more so in some ways than politicians and teachers to guide us um, along the journey uh, of, uh, of the righteousness uh, or of righteousness. I fear that it is all smoke and mirrors and meaningless unless we go out and vote and change things um, legislatively, politically, and um, and uh, governmentally. I just I just think that the true problem that's going on is something that is systemic and is not a flash in the pan problem, and it's not like. Um, you know, that easily solved with rallies. I think rallies are good to show um, that there is community buy-in and it's great to, um, you know, show that there tends to be a huge amount of population that believes in this, but unless the people in power get changed, we're in trouble. I mean, here's another way to look at it. There are black people who were shot and killed yesterday and the entire world is watching. So what it, let that sink in for a second, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's watching and it's still happening. So unless we can systematically change things, I think, um, I fear that we're, we're not gonna do something um, dramatic. Okay. Uh, I do think that the way to change things is to have people with a lot of influence, power, and money, um, and big amplifiers of their message speak out as often as they can, and those tend to be people in, in entertainment and athletics. So you know, here we go, buckle up. It's buckle. an election year. Mm -hmm. David, thank you so much. With the few minutes that are remaining, I'd like to send you back to your high school friend, Nicole, for any last thoughts that she has or any questions. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Lost you for a second. I said, hello, high school friend, David. Okay, <laughs> hello. so I, I want you, if you could, to reiterate the story you told in our uh, pre-meeting conversation about how Ms. Tromley um, did not cast you in the lead and how, you know, my girls and I, I probably should trademark this, but fail, we always say, is um, first attempt in learning.
I think you're muted, Nicole. I think you're muted. There you go. Whoop. Okay. Hi. Where did you lose me? Yeah. I lost uh, you at failed. I, I lost you at failed attempt at learning. But I think what you were asking me for was for that very, very famous story, at least in my family, about how I didn't get cast as Billy Bigelow in the aforementioned <laughs> Carousel. Um, um, I can tell you the story, and I'll, and I'll tell it briefly. Um, uh, I was a senior. I was very involved in the band um, and the choir and the play and plays and in athletics, which was a kind of a rare um, place to be. And um, I thought that I had worked, and I think I was, the, I was the president of the concert choir, so I was like pretty important. Um, and I thought that I was going, I, I was lined up perfectly to be the lead in the show. Um, I did not get the part and um, uh, I was crestfallen and um, I got the part of like the second or third male lead and Miss Trombley said to me, um, by the way, it was a good choice. I wasn't that, I wasn't supposed to play that part. Um, uh, but Miss Trombley said to me, maybe you should, you know, because, you know, you have all this energy and you want to, you know, be a more indispensable part of the community, you should go check out, you know, the math teacher, Mr. Barnes was like making, you know, scenery, go check that out. And I, it was there where I actually saw my first ever um, scenery being made, scenery being moved, um, scenery being designed. Mrs. Um, Ms. Trombley uh, would do on her script, on her, um, you know, her score, she would make these little tiny thumbnail sketches that were like about this big and they were in like black magic marker and colored in with marker and they were little set sketches. And I remember kind of dismissing it um, a little, but you know, to this day, I do um, set sketches just like that, thumbnail sketches. Um, it was in that moment that I, and then, you know, when I went to college, I knew I never wanted to audition again. That was so traumatic, but I wanted to work in the arts and I eventually found my lane, but it was really in Mansfield High School and in that room where I, um, all of those seeds were planted for me. Everything from the act of creation, that special feeling that we get um, in performing in the community that you get in putting something up. Um, the if you fail try harder or find another way to like be a valuable member of the team um the collaboration and um so many things about being accountable showing up being on time working hard and i think i share with you guys on the call you know and i mean this with absolutely no bs um people do not try any less hard in a show at mansfield high school or mmas or anywhere else the effort of creating, and in fact, the stakes are probably higher um, when you're earlier on in your career because you don't have the accolades and you know the career um, to support it if everything goes wrong. Like I remember, it was like life or death for me in that you know in that audition. Um, the only difference is the distribution method. A whole lot of people want to pay a lot of money to see Hamilton, and many more people will see it than a show at Mansfield High School. That said no one's trying any less hard um you know it's a real and and that's a that is like the lesson of like go big or go home you know that you need to understand um that you are who you are um your work ethic your drive your moral compass um your ability to focus you know we all know that thing about being late is you know like being early is on time and on time is 
um, late and late is fired, that, that whole idea. But I live my life by that, not because I'm like obsessive and need to be there early, but because there's someone else waiting to meet you. And mm -hmm. so all of those things, um, how you show up is how you show up, period. Um, I learned all of that in Mansfield um, and in a lot in and around um, the arts programs there. And um, I, I carry with them, I carry those things with me, you know, every single day and every single collaboration. And the stakes are incredibly, incredibly high um, everywhere. Uh, so that's the story. Had I gotten the play, got, gotten cast as Billy Bigelow, um, you'd probably be talking to a truck driver right now um, or something else, I don't know, um, a barista, but I didn't and now I'm a set designer. Awesome, thank you, David. Sure, thank you guys so much. David, just one last question from the library. What sure. would you say is your favorite book? <laughs> oh. Oh my God, you mean as opposed to um, How to Design the World to Get What You Want? Uh, the, un <laughs> the, the current unwritten. Um, I have a bunch. Um, I, I reread uh, Power Broker recently. Um, I, oh man, my favorite book. Well, I'll tell you what, just the other day, this is actually a good tie-in. Just the other day, my girlfriend pulled off the shelf this old, dusty copy of The Prophet um, and um, Khalil Gibran. And I got it as a graduation gift from Barbara Trombley. And it was the first book of, of poetry and prose and things that I remember getting. And like, believe me, the 17-year-old me was like, I do not want this book. What does this book have to do with me and my life? But I have to say, I have carried that book with me. I, open up to any page, you'll find something there of beauty and wonderment. Um, and uh, it's now on our bedside table, interestingly. So there's that. Thank you. Thank you, David, sure. on behalf of the library. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. <laughs> this is so wonderful. You had friends here from, uh, from all over the country. Oh, shucks. Thanks. Stay safe, guys. You too. All of you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.